The Outlet. The Talk of Queenstown. Welcome to The Outlet. I'm your host, Brent Harbour. In this podcast, I talk to Lydia Brady. Lydia is a mountaineer and mountain guide living by the side of Lake Hawea. In 1988, Lydia became the first woman in the world to climb Mount Everest without supplementary oxygen. She's a passionate mountaineer, an international mountain and ski guide, and is a professional inspirational speaker. We talk about her remarkable feats in her mountaineering career and what experiences shaped her outlook on mountaineering and life. You're listening to The Outlet, the talk of Queenstown. Hi, Lydia. Welcome to The Outlet Podcast. Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You've achieved so many remarkable feats in your mountaineering career, including climbing 10 peaks over 8,000 metres. Is there one challenging moment during any one of those ascents that has really stuck with you and and how did you overcome it? Uh, First of all, I have done 10 8,000 metre ascents but six of them have been the same mountain, which is Everest. And on the 8,000ers, we go 8,000ers or on the 8K peak, the most significant moments were going from the south summit to the main summit and getting back when I first climbed Everest without oxygen. In those days, there were I wasn't with anybody. I was on my own and there were no ropes. There's a tiny rope on one section, uh, one very, very small section on the Hillary step. I didn't have a Juma because there were no ropes. You know, I didn't have a harness because there was no ropes, you know. It was just hold on to it with your hand in case. <laughs> Which meant that you could get lost on the way down in a whiteout. And that happened every afternoon. The whiteout of the cloud would come in. So, you know, there were hazards. There's just, uh, I didn't know if I'd make it up and down for that last 100 vertical. So it was pretty stressful. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, uh, that'd be a terrible feeling to have, not knowing what the outcome's going to be. But is that, I mean, is that part of the challenge, do you think? No, it was a choice. It, was, uh, it wasn't like, oh my God, I'm in this situation where I don't know the outcome. That's different. And that happens, of course, because suddenly, you know, like an avalanche ha- well, hasn't happened that much. Otherwise, you wouldn't be around. But to make a decision to take that risk was quite hard. As you mentioned, you were the first woman in the world to climb Mount Everest without supplementary oxygen in 1988. How did that experience shape your approach to mountaineering? Well, from a mountaineering point of view, once I... Well, no, it was pretty traumatic, actually, because I had a hashtag MeToo situation where, yeah, I was pillarised for doing a route that a route that I didn't have a permit for. I had a permit for Everest, but um, didn't have a permit for that route. And the other New Zealanders I was with were also on a route without a permit, but they were able to persuade the Alpine Club that they were not, even though it was impossible for them to be where they said they were if you'd looked at a photo of Everest. So, no, it was just one of those political things, and I got myself into it as well. And and so it wasn't a very nice experience. It took quite a long time to get over, but, you know, I moved on. It's just like things happen. Especially when you're young and stroppy and a rule breaker. Easy target. Now, from your book, Going Up is Easy, is there one story that's had a really profound impact on your life or your outlook on life? Yeah. The trip, the year before Everest, so 1987, I was doing a mountain traverse in the Indian Himalaya and I was climbing with this Australian mountaineer and explorer, John Muir, super, super, super strong guy. And uh, we got trapped at about 7,000 metres in the storm and we had to descend 
the face of a mountain that we'd never seen had no map for because there were no maps in those days except just simple lines like a line and then a line off it and that would be the mountain and the ridge no topo and no gps no rope because we're doing something fast and light and not technical yeah in a storm so six avalanches in one day snow cave collapsed on me buried me in the mountain that's on day six and day seven was pretty long as well that made me realize that i had quite a lot of inner resource and i was also i think the key for me although i wasn't able to verbalize it at the time but to understand that i was able to take responsibility for my actions so that you know at one point we thought we both it's likely that the two of us might die and both of us went well we and we didn't say it but we didn't complain it was just like well we got ourselves in it's our responsibility get ourselves out it wasn't ideal and uh i think that strength that strength to say you know it's it's kind of i extrapolated to lots of things it's extrapolated to people talking about climate change so many people tell me oh we're doing our best but we're not doing our best we choose to do what we're doing and we may be doing quite a lot or we may be doing a little bit but our best would be dedicating our lives and if you just say well i'm not doing my best but i'm doing what i am comfortable doing and i and, and get to do you know get to do what i want to do and then the more it's just like it's a sort of inner honesty that allows you to step forward i think if that makes sense and you've got to be honest to yourself well, a lot of people in those situations, I mean, and you still continue to, to do all what you do. So, I mean, obviously that, that inner fortitude was really developed with that sort of situation. Yeah, and I well knew that I wasn't wanting to be in that situation ever again in my whole life. I mean, you just don't get that kind of luck having no injury, no death, and pushed completely to the limit for a lot of hours. So you talk about a little bit about the technology there. So has that really change the safety aspect or is it just another tool two things would be things like gps you know be able to the blue dot being able to find yourself via the blue dot that's phenomenal but the and, and the more bigger but the, the the change that came earlier if you like is weather forecasting so no weather forecasting and we had the situation this year because i guided at seven thousand meters seven thousand and seventy seven meters this very, very cool peak in Ladakh. And because Ladakh is a border area, you are not allowed to take any kind of in-reach, you know, any kind of GPS, any kind of PL personal locator beacon. You cannot take anything like that at all in a GPS because it's Indian military zone. And so absolutely no comms. No, you can't take a, uh, you can take uh, walkie-talkies, but you can't take a, um, a major radio. And even the military-associated liaison officer who comes with you cannot. So you have no comms in case of accident, but no comms for weather forecasting or anything. And we only had a picture. We didn't have a topo map as well because it's a border area. So it was just like the old days. Like <laughs> No one had been there. Even my ships hadn't been there. It was like so awesome. Yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, that's like flashing back to the 80s, isn't it? It was flashing back to the <laughs> 80s, and we had a really... We did a really good ascent in a really fast time and pushed ourselves pretty hard. And just, it was the kind of opportunity that, it was a kind of experience that you just don't get to have anymore. I mean, you can go back and have it. You can, you'll still be in the same situation. But there's, there's plenty of peaks out there to do it. But yeah, it's 
It's not so common. Well, I would imagine that that's when all your experience of everything you've done before just came to the fore, right? Yeah, well, sort of. Holding this one pic- <laughs> holding this picture going, I think it's up there, guys. And they're going, mm. oh, it looks a bit steep. <laughs> and the two clients are looking at us just going, do these guys know what they're going on about? It was pretty funny. It was really fun. You are passionate about inspiring people to be resilient, motivated and self-advocating. From all your experiences, where have these qualities played a real crucial role in your success? Well, you learn it over time. I think that's it. You know, and that's the beauty of, of becoming older, even though people, you don't, you know, your body's not as good, but hopefully your mind has that wee window before, <laughs> before it deteriorates decision making and I think that's what you do whether you're a big ocean sailor or you're a kayaker or you're a you go across deserts or even if you're a really serious gardener like you grow a lot of plants and your livelihoods dependent on it and you just think that where you're dealing with nature so some kind of resilience because resilience comes from knowing that life isn't designed to be fair and that's a human contract uh, construct same as rights actually and also, I, I, what I do like to talk about nowadays is that resilience is very COVID. In 2012, this really interesting guy, a philosopher, coined this phrase called anti-fragility. And all it is is putting a, a, a term to the concept that you may have an experience that knocks you down. And that's what you talk about, being resilient. You can get back on your feet again. But actually, the ideal part of life is that Everything that, say, is a challenge. And it may not knock you down. It may just be like you've never made a really exotic recipe in your life. <clears throat> and, no, I'm, I'm, cook. I'm a good cook, but I can't follow recipes very well. So you just so I can do this. I can do this really complicated recipe because I really want to do it. And that's, that's a challenge. And the idea is that you actually grow from your experiences. So his concept of anti-fragility is that it doesn't, you just don't bounce back to where you were before. You actually grow. As humans, we do have that comfort zone, don't we? And yeah, really to try new things and not just get stuck in routine, you do have to step outside that, don't you? Yeah, you know, otherwise life is kind of boring. I mean, what are you going to do? You go shopping at um, some place. I mean, I love shopping and all that sometimes. I, do, I have a problem with um, books and uh, clothes and climbing gear. <laughs> it's also engagement. You know, all these things are kind of, things you've got to deal with you know if someone comes in and t- talks to your office and they talk about resilience and that's all very jolly but you don't want a life to be full of things that you have to deal with if you are as privileged as we are now you have a life that where everything just has to be dealt with if you're well currently in Gaza or if you're in the drought areas of the world which are increasing and increasing or the floods you know then all you have is resilience you've just got to be strong but we Actually, a lot of us have a privilege of being able to say, oh, what education shall I have? Oh, what clothes shall I wear today? Oh, who shall I invite to dinner? And uh, I can afford to feed them. And so we need to look outside. And we do forget that. I mean, uh, we lived for a while in Dubai with my my family. And, you know, living in Dubai is like living on another planet because it's all like brand new. But then, of course, we saw the other side of it as well, all the workers that are in there. And, you know, they're, they're working on construction sites and it's 50 and 60 degrees in the concrete and all those things. Yeah, yeah. And, you, and that's when you kind of realise, go, yes, I am having this lovely lifestyle at the expense of other people and it's it, it was a real eye-opener for us as a family and, and kind of changed the way you approach everything so yeah you're right it is it is about thinking how lucky you are isn't it well it's probably 
stems from actually developing empathy. And I think that what we really should do is teach our children in school the meaning of concepts that you can choose to follow or adopt in your life, and you can choose that. And then that's, that begets you human choice. Empathy is not sympathy, you know. Empathy is being able to go, oh, look at these people, it's 55 degrees and, and they're working in concrete and there's a problem with water access as well and so on and so forth. And the fact that you could impart that to your children is beyond valuable because it empowers you. If you live in your own little bubble, you are actually weak. If you if you reach out, you are stronger. And, and that was kind of where we chose to live as well, because over there, obviously, there's expat communities. Everybody lives in these places, but I decided we just live where everyone said, oh, you don't want to live there. But we did, because in, in our compound where we lived, there was people from Afghanistan, Pakistan, all over the place. And it just gave the kids an opportunity to, to interact with everybody and find out different things. And I think that's you know, it is really important. You're right, that, that empathy is something that really is lacking today, for sure. Well, maybe it's an opportunity for us to say, oh, here's something that's quite simple. And if you don't understand it, it's not simple, but it's incredibly powerful because you can kind of go, oh, that plant looks thirsty. I mean, you don't have to just empathise with the, um, the car tyres. No, 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 I think the car, I don't anthropomorphise by car. So um, I think your children are really, really lucky because... I mean, you just open them up. They're going to go. They 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 go back from Dubai and they know a whole lot. Yeah, and that would have been great for you. All the all the countries that you've gone and done mountaineering in the world, you must have experienced some great things. Yeah, and I still remember. Even though it was a very simple thing. Oh my God, I've just been visiting some women in the kitchen in Pakistan, and this is back in the early '80s, where I hadn't had that opportunity because it's always guys. And they were really proud, except there I was eating with my left and my right hand. Duh. I've never forgotten that. I was just like, I, I, I pulled myself, I found my, I, I figured it out myself, but it's not rocket science. But, you know, they, those moments stay with you. They're as important as summiting Everest, really. You know, they just all come into the big pot of experiences. Could you tell me a little bit about your recent expedition with the Antarctic Heritage Trust? I mean, I've seen some of your photos online. There was a great comment on your Facebook page about it's like watching a National Geographic documentary. So what were some of the biggest challenges and the highlights of the trip for you? Oh, the biggest challenge for us was weather and decision making because we lost our weather window. Um, okay, no, let's start back. My partner and I are both international mountain guides and uh, we were invited to, well, I was invited and he was my second guide to uh, be the guides for a very small group, like three or we extended it for um, inspiring explorers to try to make a second ascent, the first New Zealand ascent of a mountain called Mount Walsley on uh, the island of South Georgia. We didn't realise that South Georgia has this chain of mountains running down it. Well, we realised that, but we didn't realise that we actually worked just like Te Waipanamu, the South Island, where the wind, weather comes from the west, dumps all its rain, and on the east side, it's it's relatively nice. We actually hadn't organised the trip either, so we didn't have a uh, a concession to climb on a mountain range. We only had a concession for this one mountain, which was really west. So we had a variety of strength of fitnesses in the group. And there was probably one person with significantly less fitness than the other people. And we had a very, uh, we would have had to have been dropped off for about four days. Plus we had two other 
non-inspiring explorers with us who we well, basically we had to look after everybody and the forecast was on for that area was looking pretty pop but it cleared up on the other side of the mountain all these other mountains were um, nice and clear and beautiful to climb and so we were a little bit frustrated but the whole mission was the most amazing amazing experience we did climb a little mountain and it was very very cool because the people on the boat could watch us because the mountain route was the in skyline profile they and we were really really windy and we only had a certain number of hours before it got dark and we had to be back at the boat before dark because otherwise the boat would have to have lights on and if the boat has lights on it gets bird strike as in one night they had this was years ago they had 900 bird strikes 200 died that kind of bird strike not like a bird strike now and again so it's really really serious and so it was really interesting juggling all those. So we had a fantastic little ascent, a ski touring and then climbing ascent. It was all these funky wee things that happened and it was a wonderful team, did lots of prep and amazing group of people going down, the who's who, including Helen Clark and Peter Davis. It was pretty cool. And um, amazing science staff and would love to go back and do some mountaineering on that incredibly remote and beautiful mountain but no one can land there right now because of um, avian flu has struck and the um, mammals and they're worried that it's going to get to the birds of course and it's one of the two most the islands in the world with the um, highest amount of animals Antarctic Heritage Trust does amazing things I'm, I, I didn't really understand what they did before and They've been doing some incredible work in Antarctica. Now, since COVID, you have been exploring more of New Zealand's mountains and and places. Are there any particular adventures or discoveries during this time that have had an impact on you? Well, yeah, in fact, strangely enough, I don't get to go into... I don't get to go. I haven't gone... See? Self-responsibility. I haven't gone into the New Zealand mountains anywhere near as much as I would like in the last few years. I've been doing so many overseas trips these years uh, this year I've made a wee film in January with my friend Holly my new friend Holly and uh, got people's favourite on the New Zealand Mountain Film Festival and it got finalised in Banff Mountain Film Fest and shown in Kendall in the UK which is pretty cool featuring in Kashmir and then we went to Georgia then we came back for two blistering weeks I did a presentation in Australia then a whole lot of admin and then we went and did a self-guided 21-day trip on the Grand Canyon. Ten days of rock climbing and socialising after that. Rock climbing and resting in, this, in the Canyonlands came back. Shortly after that, I went to Ladakh and guided the 7,000-metre peak really fast. And then we came back. Then we went to South Georgia. We had a few weeks and did some more presentations. We were in South Georgia in the Falklands, which was really amazing. And then came back, had one day at home, went to Nepal and guided at altitude with some friend clients for about 36 days and then just came back went to Wellington did a presentation came back and then I had this amazing week last week which I'd love to tell you about so see I haven't had much time to get into the New Zealand mountains and uh, just a little bit and then with the window I had was bad weather so I miss the uh, mountains in Aotearoa I really really do last week as part of a Canterbury University research project four mountaineers and four people from Arafenua Marae, which is the hapu part of Naitahu that's associated with Auraki, the mountain. We got together, 
for the whole five days. And then was one extra person who was the leader of the research project, who is a mountaineer as well, and as well as a professor. So we went into Auraki Mount Cook and actually flew into right underneath Auraki and we explored what cultural and emotional, spiritual, what values the mountain has for uh, mountaineers and for Māori. And the people from Arafenua said that pretty much every, all of, you know, people who are looking after the mountains, you know, the Tangata Whenua, they think that, that mountaineers just go in and use the mountains. And they were able to see that not not all of us, but the majority of us have a either emotional or co- definitely cultural and sometimes spiritual association and connection with the mountains. I truly believe that the majority of people who climb Auraki have a really significant experience. It's quite different to climbing other mountains in uh, Aotearoa, New Zealand. So we were able to impart that. The underlying mission was to talk about waste management, human waste management on the mountain. It's all very well saying, oh, mountaineers should carry out their waste, which they weren't necessarily saying, but we were talking about the difficulties and challenges with that and that it just ends up meaning more plastic in the environment and you know, so on and so forth. So that was the underlying mission, but the main, that was one of the missions, but the main mission was to share our cultural values. Then we went out and we drove through the Mackenzie country through dirt roads, through into Tamuka, where the Arafenua Marae is. It's a really, really beautiful marae, and we spent two nights there. And on the way, driving through and around, we stopped in all these cultural, these areas where villages would have been, and which was really important for fishing and really significant places. I had no idea that the whole of this barren landscape was full of stories. So it was a beginning of a really strong relationship, and we're able to 180-degree change the concept of how mountaineers uh, view our mountains and but we also able to underline yes we do see that lots of things have got to change or things have got to change yeah it's really really just the beginning it was just the beginning and it was like exhausting and exciting and extremely cool it's really important isn't it uh, on a cultural side and on, on a practical side as well to understand everything with that oh i was so i'm so excited what advice would you give to aspiring mountaineers who are just starting their journey into high altitude climbing or alpine style expeditions i would say probably the same advice as i'd say to anyone wanting to go out there first of all in big nature you know really you you do need to go in there with a sense of self-responsibility you'll get way more out of it and you'll be way safer uh, learn like really engage and you know, realize that it's type two fun lots of times it might sound like a good idea at the time but it's not that much fun while you're doing it and then afterwards it's really amazing it's like climbing in the dark and i really don't like climbing in the dark but the being high when the sun comes up oh my god that's like so good and there's your office it's like so beautiful yeah, engagement really and engagement and respect for the for the environment and then you end up having respect for yourself as well, don't you really? I mean, just, you know, look after yourself, have fun. Yeah, give it a go. Yeah, and oh, I think when I'm doing, uh, when I am teaching or I have a longer period of time than a, like a short podcast, I try to emphasize that for me anyway, my thoughts are you want to develop your craft. Now, anyone who is really, really skilled at something, they're generally exceptionally, exceptionally good at the, uh, at the, basic 
repetitive, really important things. You know, they know that their parachute is perfect. They know uh, perfectly folded. They know that they do all the checks. All of those things they don't actually give up as they get better and better. They just get really good at spotting something that's not right, but they they just get swift and they get they get they've developed a craft in it. So if you're going to take risk, take it at the top end. You know, not not the top end of the best people in the world because everyone there's always someone better than you. You know, but take it where it matters and the top end for you. So you've only got a limited number of taking risks, opportunities before something will go bad. You know, obviously it's just a game of chance. And so if you're going to do it, don't do it because you haven't done your harness up. Just don't do it because of dumb things. Do it because you've decided to step outside of your uh, experience zone at the other end. Well, if people want to find out some more about your achievements and get in contact with you, Lydia, what's the best way to find you online? Uh, Probably my slightly out of date website, which is Lydia Brady, with Brady's got an EY. But that, people just can Google me and find me in my website, lydiabrady.com. I'm findable on Instagram under Lydia Brady, hashtag Everest Gal. You know, just the, social media is pretty easy to find me, especially if they want somebody motivating and exciting and not ordinary with a sense of humour to talk to them. Uh, you know, to engage, I think that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. It's been absolutely lovely talking to you today. I really appreciate your time and thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Brent. On Buzzsprout, Spotify, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts, the outlet, the talk of Queenstown. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Outlet. If you have a story or an interview you think should be featured on The Outlet podcast, get in touch by clicking on the Contact Us button on the Queenstown app. The Outlet is produced and published by the Queenstown app and supported with funding from the New Zealand Public Interest Journalism Fund. The Outlet is available on the main page of the Queenstown app and wherever you get your podcasts.